All right, so we're going to look at the last two chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12, but what I want to do is kind of bring you up to speed with my own personal journey through uh, the pit of despair. The pool is filled. The pool is filled. It's clean. The chemicals are right. It'll probably last about a week, but I took a picture of it just to remember it before I implode it the next time this happens. Uh, you're probably thinking, you know, wait a minute, you're a pastor. You know, how did you get that? This was built probably 18 years ago when I wasn't a pastor, so um, I wouldn't have this right now. Uh, but it's clean. It's filled. Um, I, I'm not looking forward to getting my water bill, uh, but... Uh, the kids swam in it, so they're happy, I'm happy. But even more important, I told you last week while I was teaching that my oldest son and his wife were expecting, and so I can't stop but not. The baby's here. The baby's here. I did play a little bit of a role in this, you know, but... Uh, her name is Evangeline. Uh, they're going to call her Evie, so uh, you know, if you want to send her cash for college, that's great. Um, but she's healthy, the mom's healthy, and everything went well. And she was actually born while I was teaching, so um, not sure what that means, but she's here. So tonight we're going to cover uh, chapter 11 and chapter 12 as uh, Solomon wraps up his uh, discussion of all things under the sun. And... Um, he ends it the same way he begins it. Uh, he's going to end it with the same phrase that starts out chapter 1, which is vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Which, if you think about it, is kind of a sad way to end a book that you've written. That I'm okay with it starting negative, but it ought to kind of end positive. But he kind of ends the way he begins. And it's a reflection, again, of his life and his viewpoint of life. I've had several guys ask me over the last few weeks, you know, do, do, I, think, do I think Solomon's in heaven? Uh, great question. Um, I would tend to say yes. I would tend to say that he's an Old Testament saint who did have faith in God. Uh, he did not understand. He did not know about the Messiah. He didn't place faith in the Messiah. I think he walked away from God. Um, but I don't think he completely obliterated his belief in God. Uh, he was synchronistic. He had God, Yahweh, and then he had other gods. He kind of covered all his bases. But I, I really can't answer that question. I would be hard-pressed to believe that God would have someone write one of the books of the Bible who's not in heaven. But we don't know. But he's a man who started out well and finished poorly. And if you remember anything else about Solomon, remember that. Because as we've said over the last few weeks, we want to end well. We don't want to follow his lead in that respect. So he's going to say... Once again, in these last chapters, a lot of the same things he said already. So there's going to be a little bit of repetition, but we're going to kind of focus in on one thing, and that's his view of eternity. So he says, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. So here's his view that he believes in God, the one shepherd. He believes in Yahweh. He believes that wisdom comes from God. He believes that wise sayings are a gift from God, and he describes them in two different ways. And he says... Speaking to a, a young person, and I think this book, like Proverbs, is focused on young people because he's an old man, and he's trying to tell young men and young women, here's what I did, here's what I've learned, here's what you need to do, and he says, beware of anything beyond these. Beyond what? Words of the wise. Words that come from God, wisdom from God, collected sayings. 
listen to these things and avoid everything else. But then he says, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. One of the things that amazes me about Solomon is that he, he talks out of both sides of his mouth. He contradicts himself almost constantly. And so he talks about wise sayings. He talks about uh, making them an important part of your life. And then he says, but there's a waste, it's a waste of time to write too many books. And yet he wrote three of them. Um, he, he's, he's full of contradictions trying to figure out life. He's still trying to figure out what does it all mean? Where does it all go? Um, how's it all going to end? I don't know what the future holds. And he compares these words of wisdom that ultimately come from God to goads. Well, what's a goad? Well, a goad in their day was just a sharp stick and they would use it to herd and it was pointed and it hurt and it was memorable and it got action from an animal. So if you're herding cattle, if you're herding sheep, you would use a goat and you would just, you want them to go a certain way, you just poke them. And it got their attention. And he says, wise words that come from God are like a goat. They, they're pointed, they're direct, they motivate, they get you going, and they help you course correct when you need course correction. Um, I think if you've had a teenage son in your life, you get this. Sometimes you wish you had a goad uh, where you could just poke them and you could just prod them and, because sometimes they just need course correction. They don't need logic. They need brute force. Don't do that. Stop that. And that's really what he's talking about. They're, they're profitable and he puts high stock in them. He compares them to nails. We all know what a nail is. We all know what a nail is supposed to do. It keeps what you nail where you nailed it. And if it didn't stay there, you've either didn't nail it right or you don't have long enough nails or something's wrong. But you nail it so it will stay there. Wise words keep things where they're supposed to be. They keep people where God intends them to be. That's why they're important. And they provide this sense of stability to your life if you apply them. Now, wise words that are unapplied don't really do much, do they? You can, you can sit down with your kids and you can pour wisdom into them, but if they choose not to use the wisdom, they're going to be like an unnailed board. They're not going to stay where they're supposed to stay. They're not going to do what they're supposed to be. They're going to be like a cow that's got its own mind, and unless it's goaded and prodded, it won't do and go where you want it to go. So he sees value in wisdom, but he doesn't see a whole lot of wisdom in a bunch of books that there's weariness and almost worthlessness in too many books. Then he makes this statement in verse 13. He says, the end of the matter, so here he is, he's going to wrap it all up for us. The end of the matter, all has been heard. So it's like, I've written all this. I've told you everything I know to tell you. You've been sitting across from him at the star, Starbucks. He's getting ready to go. You've had it about up to here listening to this guy. And he goes, okay, I'm going to sum it all up. When it's all said, at the end of the day, when it's all complete, here's the end of the matter. When everything's been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Now, you and I read that, and we go, man, that's solid. That's, that's good stuff. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to put that on a coffee mug. I'm going to put it on a plaque. I'm going to hang it on the wall. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And he's right. He's very right. But we're going to see he's also wrong. Because he mixes some of his statements 
with other attitudes that he brings to the equation that we've already looked at, his perspective of life, and he's going to take a very godly, accurate, truthful statement, and he's going to negate it. Because look what he says. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The whole duty. What does that mean? See, he's got a motivation to fear God. Well, what's his motivation? Why does he say, fear God and keep his commands? Well, it's kind of interesting. He ties it to judgment. Let me just tell you this. If you obey God because you fear judgment, you don't understand God. And you most certainly don't understand your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But he's motivated by judgment, which is a really lousy motivator when it comes to your relationship with God. So for Solomon, when he thought of God, he thought of judgment. Fear God, keep his commandments. Why? Because God's a judge. Now is that right? Yes. Is it accurate? Yes. Is it truth? Yes. But it's an improper motivation. He's coming at this thing as he's done for 12 chapters. How? Under the sun. Life under the sun. I live under the sun. My perspective's under the sun. I live in this earth. I'm a temporal being. God's in heaven. He's eternal. I'm here down on earth living my life. I don't know how much longer I have to live. But I do know this. God judges everyone. So I better fear him and better keep his commandments. Why? Because he's a judge. And so his view is what? All the judgment comes here and now. In this life. On this planet. And again, what I want us to be really careful of is that we don't have a relationship with God like this because, and many of us do, sadly, we come to God and we say, well, you know, I'll have a quiet time because if I don't have a quiet time, something's going to happen. I'll pray because if I don't pray, something's going to happen. I know when I was much younger and my kids were very young that I would pray for my kids because I was afraid if I didn't pray for my kids, something would happen. Now, what does that reveal about my view of God at that point in my life? That God's this kind of arbitrary judge who sits up in heaven, and if you don't do what I tell you to do, all hell's going to break loose in your life. If you don't pray, your kids are going to get in trouble. I used to fear my kids would get hit by the bus. They were homeschooled. I mean, how are they going to get hit by the bus? I mean, it's like, they didn't ride the bus. They're going to get kidnapped. They're going to get, you know, something's going to, they're going to get cancer. If I don't pray for them, they're going to get cancer. That's the view that Solomon has. So he's, he's looking for either blessings or curses from God in this life. And that's what he means by the word judgment. So if you're going to pursue blessings apart from God, Solomon would say, well, that's vanity. Because you got to go to God to get the blessings. Is that right? Yes. Is it true? Yes. But what's your motivation? Why do you go to God for blessings? Why do you go to God and obey God? Why do you pray to God? What, why do you have a relationship with God? And one of the things that we can learn from him is that he's got a relationship that is misplaced. It's misrepresenting the God we understand for both the Old and the New Testament. 
the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of love. He's not just a God of judgment. He is, but he's also a God of great mercy, and he's a giver of gifts. Solomon knew that, but it was all tied to judgment. See, God is the giver of gifts, but he's also the giver of the ability to enjoy the gifts. And that's why I would always say that, you know, you get all the stuff and you pursue it and you, you go after it, and, well, just enjoy it while you got it because that's your lot. That's your inheritance. That's all you're going to get. That's all we know. That's all we have. Everything has to come in this life. And one of the reasons that I wanted to end on this idea of eternity is because when we come back in September, we're going to talk about eternity. We're going to talk about the book of Revelation. We're going to talk about the end times. We're going to talk about the future, the return of Christ, the rapture of the church, all those things. And, and really try to get a better understanding, what is it we believe, we say we believe about eternity. See, this is not eternity. This is temporal. This won't last. And so we're talking about the end. He had an in, inadequate understanding, an incomplete view of the end. What did the end entail? And it, it, it affected everything he looked at in life. And, and I believe that there are men in this room, and, and I'm one of them, that occasionally I lose sight of eternity and I get focused on the here and now. So, so, for instance, you know, this has been a, an interesting week of uh, just finding out about people I know and love who have gotten bad news. One of my nephews, who's 34, uh, has been diagnosed with uh, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, and, and uh, we still don't know what that's going to look like. Newly married, new baby, and he's, he's got cancer. And then I heard from my oldest brother today that he's got lung cancer. And when you hear those things, right, what, what happens in your heart? Why? Why, God? What, what are you doing? And it's so easy to lose sight of what? Eternity. And lose sight of what God has planned and that God's not done yet. And I don't know how either of those cases is going to work out, but I do know this, that God's in control. But if you lose sight of the future you lose hope. And you begin to focus on the here and now. And it affects how you view life in the here and now. So he didn't have an adequate view of death, and I'm not the only one who believes this. Um, Donald Glenn says this in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, life after death was as enigmatic to him as the unequal distribution of justice. His emphasis was on this life under the sun and its opportunities for service and enjoyment. He thought life after death offered no such opportunities. So here he is, he's a good Hebrew, he's a good follower of Yahweh, even though he follows some other gods as well, and he just doesn't understand that there is something out there after death. He doesn't get it, he doesn't know it, he can't grasp it, even though he's the wisest man on earth, and so he concentrates on what he can know and what he can see. If I do good things in this life, maybe God will reward me with more stuff. If I don't, maybe he'll curse me. So I better take advantage of the here and now. And I better enjoy all that I do have that are blessings because who knows when he's going to drop the other shoe. What a way to live your life. What, what a sad state of affairs for you to live your life with that kind of an attitude about God and about this time on earth. 
So this is a guy, as we've seen over the last weeks, that he's, he's tried everything, right? He's had it all. He's the wisest man who ever lived, not by his decree, but by God's. God called him the wisest man who ever lived. He had more wisdom than anybody up to that point and after that point. He still holds the record for the wisest man who ever lived. And yet, it never got him what he wanted. He has more money than anybody could ever imagine. Beyond your wildest dreams, he could, he could purchase anything he wanted, and he did, including people, slaves and concubines and you name it. He tried everything in terms of pleasure. Remember he said, I've not denied my heart one thing. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Well, I can, and it's not a pretty picture. It, it, you know, if, if I could have whatever my heart desires, I would be one screwed up individual. More screwed up than I already am. But fortunately, I don't have that capacity. I, I don't have that kind of wealth. I can't go buy whatever I want to buy. He could. If he had a desire, guess what? Do it. If he saw something he wanted, buy it. We can lust after it, but we can't buy it in many cases. He could, and he did. And he found out, doesn't add up. He was filled with insignificance, dissatisfaction, and he couldn't achieve what he thought would be true success. In spite of all this, right? In spite of all that he tried. And yet, here's a guy that put all the stock where? In this life. I got to get it here. I got to have it now. And he was facing death. See, every day you live, you're getting closer to the end, right? Uh, Death is out there. We don't know when it's coming. Could come today, could come tomorrow, could come 10 years, 20 years. We don't know. But it's coming and it's an inevitability for all of us. And it was for him because he's up in his years. He's 70, maybe 80. We don't know. But he's coming to the end of his life and he's tried everything. He's lived his life. He's done everything he can do. And now he realizes that I'm running out of time. And he's really kind of scared about it. He's really concerned about it. So here's what he's going to tell you and I. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. This is where he gets back into Yoda talk. You know, he, he's like speaking in riddles and rhymes, and you're like, what are, you, what are you saying? Cast your bread upon the waters. What does that even mean? Give a portion to seven, even to eight, for you know not when disaster may happen on the earth. And we're going to come back and explain these in just a second, but just listen to what he's saying. If, if uh, the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Oh, okay, that helps. If a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. I thought you were the wisest man who ever lived. <laughs> this is not helpful. This, this doesn't even... Anybody knows this. The biggest fool on earth, the biggest moron knows this. Why is this helpful? He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. Then in verse 5, as you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. See, he, he, he talks in, in almost riddles that are hard to understand. We're not really sure what he's saying, but he's making a point. We just got to figure out what that point is. What is he trying to tell you and I? He says, in the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you don't know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. It's, a, it's kind of amazing to me that he always comes back to this, this statement, you don't know. To be the wisest man on earth and not know must have driven him crazy. To not know. I don't know. You sow, you plant, you do, 
all these things, and nobody knows. You do not know what's going to happen, this or that, good or bad, evil, blessing. We don't know. And that's kind of his summary as he closes up his book. You don't know which will prosper, this or that, whether both alike will be good. You don't know. So he said back in chapter 9, it seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. What's that fate? Death. Remember, he's obsessed with death. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There's nothing ahead but death anyway. There is, only, there is hope only for the living. As they say, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. There's that phrase I love. No hope. Look at what he says about death. And when you say this about death, what are you really speaking about? What comes after death? He says there's no hope and there's nothing ahead. Nothing out there. So what does that mean you have to do? You got to live it all now. It's better to be a living dog, as bad as that may sound, than to be a dead lion. Wrong perspective. Incomplete perspective. See, when he's looking at death, he's, he's facing death with his eyes and he realizes that it's, this is not good. I don't really understand this. I don't get it. And that's why he's just said over and over again in this book, make the most out of what you have right now. Live for the moment. And so all these little weird phrases he's just said, this is what they mean in the context. Cast your bread upon the waters just means use your assets wisely. He's not telling you to take a loaf of bread and go throw it in your pond. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if you're a farmer and you raise wheat, take the wheat, put it on a ship, and send it out and sell it, and then take the profit and invest it. Use your assets wisely. That's what he's talking about. It's, it's kind of a, a riddle, but it's very clear that he's, he's talking about using what God has given you wisely. You should. I should. Be used wise users of God's gifts. Then he says, give a portion to seven and even to eight. Just diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify your portfolio is really all he's saying. Don't put all your stock here. Maybe that's why he had 700 wives. I don't know. Don't put all your stock in one wife. Get 700. Not really wise, but diversify. Use your assets wisely. And then he says, if the clouds are full of rain, look at them. If you're a farmer, you see the clouds are full of rain, you better plant now. Because if you wait, the ground will be too wet. So seize the opportunity. Look for the moment. Live, don't be lazy. Remember, we've talked about, about that before. Don't procrastinate, but seize the opportunities. He's just trying to tell you, us, young men in particular, live wisely. Make the most of the moment. But again, it's incomplete advice because it's putting everything in this life, disregarding the afterlife. Because he lives under the sun. And all of us in this room can live under the sun if we're not careful. We can become obsessed living under the sun. And we can read the newspaper and we can hear even what happened today about the, the shooting in the, uh, um, the newsroom. And, and we sit there and go, golly, how, how much worse can it get? Oh, it's going to get worse. It's, the Bible tells us it's going to get worse. 
but you can get defeated. But we shouldn't be defeated because we know what comes. We know that we're already victors. But see, all he can tell you is just, man, just work hard. Just work hard because it all comes here. It's all part of God's judgment. You're either going to get blessed or you're going to get cursed. But you just work hard. Do the best you can. Enjoy life. Be diligent. He says, act wisely. And again, this is all stuff I've told every one of my kids. And if my grandkids will listen, I'll tell them as well. I want them to do these things. I want them to be sensible about life. I want them to work hard. I want them to have a good work ethic. I don't want them to procrastinate. And I'm going to use my, my own life as an example of don't do what I did. Don't live like I live. I want them to impact what they can, take advantage of every opportunity, and leave the rest up to God. Work hard. Great advice. Good advice. But incomplete advice. Why? Because he's living out leaving out eternity. Don't leave out eternity, guys, because it's our hope. So he gives good advice, but it's incomplete advice. He doesn't tell them to put your hope in the future. If you want to do an interesting study, go back and read the Psalms of David. He wrote somewhere around 73 to 75 of the Psalms. And in most cases, David seemed to understand about eternity. But somehow it didn't get transferred to Solomon. And David was always talking about the future and always talking about the coming blessings of God. But Solomon didn't track with that. Solomon didn't get it. So he focused on what? The here and now. What he could taste, what he could feel, what he could touch, what he could understand, what he could comprehend. And he knew that he needed to live a wise life and he encourages others to live a wise life, but he didn't encourage them to live expecting something beyond this life. See, this world, you can go out today, you can go to the bookstore, you can go to the library, you can get online, you can go to Amazon.com, and you can order all kinds of books filled with all kinds of wisdom about how to live life. And many of them are going to say these things, work hard, be diligent, don't procrastinate, invest wisely, diversify. But where is all of their focus? Here. And they're not telling you to focus on eternity. Put your... Put your heart there, not here. Don't put all your eggs in this basket because this basket's not going to last. This basket's not going to be here. So that's why he says in verse 7, light is sweet and it's pleasant to the eyes to see the sun. It's fun to wake up in the morning, especially when you're old. <laughs> because you woke up, right? And so he says, man, when I, when I wake up and I can still see the sun and there's a great portion in here where he talks about um, getting old, and we're not going to talk about it tonight, but it, he, he talks about the teeth and the hair falling out and, and everything falling apart and your hearing going, and this is his life. So yeah, when the sun comes up and I can see it, I'm a happy camper. I got one more life to live, one more day to live. He says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. What's he talking about? Death. So enjoy life now. All that comes is vanity. Isn't that sad? Enjoy seeing the sun. Enjoy the life you got because days of darkness are coming. Isn't that what you want to go home tonight and get, you know, when you put your kids down to bed, your little kids, you lay down, you honey, before we pray, I want to tell you something. See the sun tomorrow. 
because the days are dark that are coming. <laughs> Enjoy all you can get, because we don't know what the hell's coming next. <laughs> what kind of wisdom is that? What kind of advice is that? What kind of hope is that? But, but here's what's real interesting. See, we laugh, but what do we model for our kids? Get it all now. Enjoy it here. Grab everything you can get. See, they watch your life and they, they hear your words coming out of your lips, but they watch your life and they go, Dad, you're, you kind of seem to live like you, you want it all now. You want instant gratification just like I do. You want instant pleasure. You want the things of this world just as much as I do. And hear me out, guys. I am not against, and God is not against the things of this world because God gives the gifts that we enjoy. I've joked about it, but I, I'm, I'm glad I have a pool. I'm glad we built that pool 18 years ago because my kids swam in it. My nephews and nieces swam in it. Now my grandkids are swimming in it. I, I'm glad. It, it drives me crazy. It's a money pit. But it's, it's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But it's not everything. So he, he looks at his days of darkness. All that comes is vanity. That's why he says, Rejoice, O man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. In other words, whatever you can see, whatever you can walk to and touch and feel, enjoy it, because this is it. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Well, that's encouraging. He didn't say God's going to bless you. He said, no, God's going to bring you into judgment. We just don't know whether it's going to be good or bad. It's just judgment. See, God's the judge. So, well, let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart. Have a good time. The sight of your eyes. But don't forget, God's going to judge you. His view of judgment is not our view of judgment in the sense of future judgment, the great white throne judgment, he's thinking judgment right here. Lose your family, lose your health, lose your life, lose your money, get blessed, get a new chariot, get another wife, you know, whatever his thought of blessing was, it comes here and now. And we got to be real careful that we don't send that message to our kids. So when things happen, when, when something good happens and you say, what a blessing from God, that may or may not be right. It may or may not be wrong. Don't train your kids to only see good things as blessings from God. We got a new car. What a blessing from God. Is that a wrong statement? No. But it's a confusing statement to a child. Because they go, blessings from God always come in things that I want. Have you ever had something happen in your life that initially you thought was a curse and then you realized it was a blessing? I've been fired from jobs, gone home, totally depressed and angry, feeling like, why did God do this to me? This is the worst thing that could happen. It's the worst timing. And months later, I realized this is the best thing that ever happened in my life. I remember I was taking my wife for, our, for her 40th birthday to um, England. I'd saved up, paid for the whole thing. We booked the airlines. Everything was ready. The week we were leaving, on Monday morning, I show up at work, and I was let go. 
totally caught me off guard. Never saw it coming. And it was one of those things where you clean out your office today. And I remember I loaded my car, I get in my car, and I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to tell my wife? It was the most stressful job I'd ever had. I actually hated it. And I would go home angry every night. I would go home tense. I would go home depressed. I would go home. My wife would go, just quit, just quit. I can't quit because I was making too much money. But I lost my job. I go home and I said, honey, we can't go on this trip. She goes, no, we're going. We paid for it. We're going. I said, I don't have a job. She goes, I don't care. We're going. <laughs> and we went. And it was the most relaxing vacation I've ever had in my life. Because I didn't have to worry about work. And after about two days on vacation, I realized I never have to go back to that place. <laughs> now, I didn't have a job. But I wasn't worried about it. See, that looked like a curse, but it was a blessing. Don't train your kids to only see, God blessed you with a new dress. That's, a, that's an incomplete view of the blessings of God. See, God works in ways that we don't understand, and we don't know what's a blessing sometimes, and we don't know what's a curse. I have actually taken jobs that ended up being a curse because I took them for the wrong reason. I took them out of pride. I took them because of money. I took them because of prestige. And they became a curse in my life because they pulled me away from God. And they pulled me away from my family. Be careful how you view these things. He says in verse 10, remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. In other words, don't worry about anything. Don't stress yourself out. Just have a good time. Don't take life too seriously for youth and the dawn of life or vanity. They're not going to last. Again, really weird, incomplete wisdom. See, I compare it with what Jesus says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be vexed. But look at how Jesus words it. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Who's he talking to? The disciples. Because he told them, I'm leaving. Leaving? Yeah, I'm going to die. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. Forbid it, Lord. Get thee behind me, Satan. See, Jesus is telling them, I'm going to come back. Don't be worried. Don't be vexed. But don't be vexed because the future's already taken care of. Different idea. See, for Solomon, he looks at life and he goes, it's all vanity. Doesn't add up. Doesn't have any meaning. Because he didn't know there was meaning in the future, in the life to come. So what do you do when you view life that way? You live with your five senses. What I can taste, touch, feel, sense, enjoy. If you're going to believe in eternity, it's going to require faith, right? Anybody been to heaven? No, I don't think so. I've been literally reading and studying Revelation all summer, and I still can't tell you what heaven looks like. Now, John describes it, but he's using human words to describe something that is indescribable. I don't know what heaven looks like. You don't know what heaven looks like. It takes faith. I've never met anybody who's been there, but I believe it exists. I believe it exists. It takes faith. 
to believe in eternity because we are temporal creatures. And Solomon had a problem with what? Faith in something he couldn't see. We have trouble with that. I remember when my dad died four years ago and he was in hospice and my dad was 93 years old and he had struggled for months and months and I was with my mom and my youngest son was with us and we were there when he took his last breath. And I'll never forget as we were playing Christian hymns on my iPhone and my dad's eyes were closed and he hadn't had his eyes open for about a day and a half and he's breathing slowly and the nurse was off to the side and we were just there with him and we didn't know what was going to happen and part of me was scared, part of me was sad. I, I had all these mixed emotions and I remember my dad opened his eyes and he said, I see him. I see him. I'm going. And he breathed his last breath. I remember I looked, I looked over at my son, who was probably 21 at the time, and his eyes were as big as saucers. And he, he was blown away. And I said, I know where he is. I know where he is. See, that takes faith. My dad had faith. I don't have a clue what my dad saw. But I think he saw Jesus. And I know where he is. Have I been there? No. Can I prove that my dad's there? No. But I have faith that he's there. See, Solomon didn't have faith. Solomon had everything but faith. And you and I are so blessed, but without faith, we have no hope. Faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. He's going to come back. This is not the end. It gives us assurance about things I can't see. I'm going to see my dad someday. My mom's 97. I don't know how much longer she's going to live, but if she dies this week, I will see her. If my oldest brother dies of cancer, I will see him. If my nephew dies of cancer, I will see him. How do I know that? Because it's a promise of God. It's a promise of Scripture. It's why Jesus Christ came and died. Even though I can't see it, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we can't see are going to last forever. This isn't going to last, guys. It's not going to last. This is probably not the last time I drain and fill that stinking pool. It's not going to last. It's going to kill me. But I know where I'm going. I don't care. I don't care. I care about the fact that God has a plan for my life and your life, and it takes faith. So he says in chapter 12, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Great advice, Solomon. Finally, some really good advice. Remember your creator for the evil days come. Ugh. Stay on track. Why do you have to take something really solid and screw it up? Remember your creator for the evil days come and the years draw near for which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. See, no faith in the future, no faith in eternity. And he ends up giving really bad advice. So let's, let's just review. He's had every opportunity. He was born into a great family to a great father. Well, maybe not so great a father, but a father who loved God. He's been given everything he could ever want, wisdom, money, you name it, talent. 
but he forgot God. That advice we just read in chapter 12, he had forgotten. Which is why he's telling you, don't forget your creator. Because he had. He had gone to other gods. He had forsaken the one who had made him wise and who had given him wealth and who had blessed him immensely. And you and I have to be careful that we don't do the same thing. Make gods other than God. And we do it all the time. They're so easy to manufacture because we become obsessed with the things that we think we possess, but they actually possess us. And we end up worshiping them. And we end up making more of the gift than we do of the giver of the gift. Enjoy what you have. Enjoy your health. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your kids. Enjoy your grandkids. Enjoy your pool. Enjoy your car. Enjoy your golf clubs, your basketball. Whatever it is you have, enjoy it. But remember, everything you have comes from God. Every good gift comes from who? Him. And never make more of the gift than the giver. Never put all your hope and your stock in those things. Never let them be your satisfaction because they will cause you to compromise your convictions. They will, just like they did him. And you will end up making gods, false gods, out of things God never intended to be gods. And it will harm your walk with him. Spiritual complacency, moral compromise are always a risk for every man in this room, including myself. It's easy to do. It's especially easy to do if you take your eyes off of eternity. If you lose sight of eternity and you become myopic and you stop, start looking at this life, everything becomes a God because you're expecting something from them they can't deliver. It says man's going to his eternal home. I agree. The mourners go out in the streets. The silver cord is snapped. The golden bowl is broken. The pitcher is shattered at the fountain. He uses all these kind of weird metaphors. The wheel is broken at the cistern. The dust returns to the earth as it was. The spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Great way to end a book. What's he saying? Every one of these are just metaphors for death. What's his final point in his book? Death. Death. You know what the final point of this book is? Life. Life eternal. Oh, there's death. We're going to see lots of death in the book of Revelation. But the point of the book is eternal life. Redemption. Restoration. Recreation. So I see a guy in Solomon who's not real excited about eternity because he's filled with fear. His fear is fueled by uncertainty about the future. His uncertainty is fed with, by an unfamiliarity with his God. He doesn't really understand God, the love of God, the mercy of God. And that unfamiliarity does what? It makes faith in God impossible. If you don't really understand God, you'll never understand the things God does around you. You'll always question him. You'll always doubt him. So John 3, 16, 17, what a great way to close up. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have what? Eternal life. What's our hope? Eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. But see, John's not done, even though we typically end here. There's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, Jesus, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. 
He's not done. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so that others can see that they are doing what God wants. See, Jesus Christ came to provide us with light. You and I can see. We see things Solomon never saw. We have truth that Solomon didn't have. We have hope that he didn't have. And so even though he was wise, even though he was the preacher, he was the speaker to the assembly, he had so much going for him, he didn't have it all. So when he says, when all is said and done, he didn't know all. He didn't have the complete closure to the picture. The preacher sought to find words of delight. He up, uprightly wrote words of truth. But here's what God says. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. Take delight in him. Don't take delight in wisdom. Don't take delight in stuff. Don't take delight in this world. Take delight in the Lord. Find your hope and satisfaction in him. And Jesus said, if you're looking for truth, don't look for it in this life. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. So here's Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, had wisdom out the gazoo, but he didn't know the truth. We do. So we should have hope, and we should live in that. Again, I tell you the truth, Jesus said, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, for they have already passed from death into life. See, guys, I have hope. I'm not worried about the future. I know I have an eternity. Do I get wrapped up in this world? You bet. So do you. But let's not be like Solomon. Let's learn from him what we can learn. We know the end of the story. We know how it ends. We know that this isn't it. There's an incarnation. There was a resurrection. He went back to heaven, but he's coming back again someday. All has been said or heard, Solomon says, but he hadn't heard it all. What have we heard that he hadn't heard? There's a son to sin. There's a sacrifice to offer. There's a resurrection to take place. And there is a king who's going to return someday. So we're going to close with this passage because it's in Revelation. And it's going to set the stage for what we're going to be looking at when we come back in September. There's a king coming, guys. He's coming back. And you better believe that. Because if you don't believe that, this is a sad state of affairs. He says, I saw heaven open, John said, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. That's us. That's the church. Coming back with him. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We have hope. We know how the story ends. And we're going to study the story from beginning to end when we come back in September. And I hope you'll come back. Because guys, what I want for me and what I want for you is that we might live as wise men in a very unwise age. That we might live as godly men in a godless age. But we would live as men who have our hope set on what's to come. He's coming back. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise of the return of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the book of Revelation, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you, Father, that we have hope, that your promises are sure, sure that he is faithful and true, and what he has said he will do, he will do. 
He came, he died, he resurrected, he went to heaven, he's coming back for his bride, the church, and then he's going to come back and he's going to restore all things. And Father, may we live with that hope. May we live as men who have faith in eternity. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.